Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. And uh, once again, greetings to you from the capital of the capitalist world, apparently. DC is the capital of the United States, but um, you know, I would give the capital of the capitalist world a bit more to, to New York. I have a lot of questions about the United States and this culture and everything's going on here. And some things that, you know, I started thinking about while I was looking at all the museums and, and all the weird stuff and inconsistencies, and in a way, a lot of them tie into Eastern Europe. So I thought, well, who else to invite to my show that's an American person that could answer my weird musings than Alex from History Impossible? Hello, hello. It's good to be back. It's good to hear your voice again, man. Well, uh, it's been fun. I mean, I invited Alex because, well... One, he was the person that actually would agree to, you know, come on in such a short notice. And secondly, when I was on his show, you should definitely go and listen to that interview if you haven't already. I had tons of fun, so I thought this would be interesting as well. Yeah, I'm going to give myself credit that I was uh, the first person to bring up Alexander Dugan with you in an interview with you. I'm going to I'm going to claim that. I don't know if it's true, but I'm just going to claim it anyway. <laughs> you can. You kind of pulled a wide one on me uh, by, by pulling Dugan out mm -hmm. and asking me in-depth questions. Normally, I've been asked about Dugan, but it's more like, you know, phrases on top of the iceberg and like Putin's ideology, stuff like that. No, man. Alex went all in. It was, it was crazy. I mean, I got to give credit to Benjamin Teitelbaum and his incredible book, uh, War for Eternity. So if your listeners haven't picked that up, uh, they should. I, I think you should pick it up. I'd be really curious what your thoughts were on it. If like you thought that Teitelbaum got something wrong or if he it gave you information you didn't know already. I mean, I'm assuming you probably know all there is to know about Dugan at this point. But Comrade, comrade I, am, I am in the United States. Do you think I've brought all of my books with me? Yes. You're a podcaster. <laughs> no, no, no. I know, I know. Yeah, for sure. Only a few. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm looking at this one place because I promised to give out a shout out to a listener of mine. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Um, there's a guy on Twitter called Oinbones. Oinbones. He's a listener of mine, and he recommended upon my entering that I go to a place called Stoney's Tavern on P Street and order the super grilled cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And what, I did. What'd you think of it? <laughs> and it was amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm not sponsored by them in any way or form. <laughs> but uh, when, when you post on Twitter, because that's my most used social media, hello, DC, going to go and eat and then do some research. Someone doesn't say, go there, it's good. They say, go here and order this. Yeah. And then you do it. And it's awesome. I thought that that kind of requires... Uh, Requires a proper shout out. Of course. And, and if any of you ever come to Lafayette, I'll of course give you a, a full, full guide as well. I'm going to hold you to that. I've been planning to come to, well, I, I really got to get to continental Europe. I mean, I've never been so, and I want to go to the Eastern part more than the Western part, to be honest. Comrade, comrade, if, if I can, uh, your odds of getting shot randomly in the street are way lower than here. Yeah, I would, I would probably assume that. <laughs> I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I mean, yeah. And I lived in Chicago before that. So I'm, I'm used to random explosions of violence every so often. One of Latvia's best journalists, Karl Strapes, uh, he moved to Latvia in the 90s, but he originally grew up in, in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
he's got that experience. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> you go to parts of Chicago, it's I mean, it's a you could call it a war zone at various times. It's not like all the time, but I mean, it, I hate to be such a downer right in the onset, but you know, I think it was 2021, definitely 2020, the murder rate in Chicago went even higher and it was already peaking 500. Now I think it, I want to say it was 2020, maybe 2021, where it was over 800, closing in on 900 people a year just getting killed. This reminds me of, of the greatest police educational video I've seen of all time, Surviving Edged Weapons. Yeah. I think that, that was a review by Red Letter Media who reviewed this police educational tape. At, it was it was amazing. Everything's a knife. Everything. <laughs> But um, here I have some questions that, that have gathered in my mind here. Of course. I'll start with the practical things and then we'll move up to the philosophical musings, which I've gathered uh, while touring the halls of Smithsonian American History Museum, which, by the way, is amazing. I love all those museums. I've, I've been to many of them. Did you catch the uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum? That was the one I went to when I was in D.C. last. Well, sadly, I didn't, but I've been to other Holocaust Memorial Museums. Of course. You know, with, with limited time in the day, and those museums are really huge, so you can't really pack multiple in today. Right, right. I, I elected to go to the American History Museum to learn something more about America, and it was really great. That's a good call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and I don't mean to be disparaging, but, you know, you've been to one Holocaust Memorial Museum, you've been to many of them. I'm not to, the one in DC is incredible. But it's also a huge downer on top of everything else. And I think you are living through a pretty serious life right now anyway. So I've been to a couple out of them, out of them, two in Poland. So that, that works. Oh, OK. Yeah. First question I want to ask you is like, OK, and this is kind of a breather episode again, dear listeners. I warned you about this. I recorded a proper serious news episode today and I warned that this is going to be a, a bit of a breather for me. But uh, first question, what's up with your public bathrooms? <laughs> In what sense? Where to start? Like how? In all of them. Look, I have two two serious questions. One, why is your? And I got a weird answer to this, by the way, today. Like, I was wondering why do all the bathroom stalls have this raised like door? Why, why is there a kind of a huge gap in the doors in the in the bathrooms? I could not. I. You know what? I have the very same question. Whoever designed the bathroom stall in America, I have no idea. I've always wondered that. Um, there are. I should say though, there are some places, and weirdly, the last one I saw it in was a McDonald's. But there are some places that it's just a straight up door. It's like a closet, basically, with the toilet in it. But that's not common. The the raised door with the gaps and everything, like that. Literally, a pervert could just look right in and see everything. <laughs> see, a listener of mine that I spoke with today, uh, he gave me a weird answer. He said, "Well, that's to stop the teenagers from having sex in them." What? Uh, yeah, <laughs> apparently, yeah, apparently those they were designed. I kind of can't believe that for a simple. Simple reason. Who in their own right mind would want to have sex in the public bathroom? I mean, the only place that I know things like that have happened in are clubs. And clubs usually have like not stalls like that. And if they want to stop people from doing that or doing drugs in them, they just take the doors off and say, if you want to take a crap, do it at your own risk. Never, everyone can see you. <laughs> I, I thought you wouldn't say clubs. I thought you would say Southern California or Florida. <laughs> Well, maybe also. I don't know. I mean, I, the, the honestly, the um, that is such a good. I never really thought about that. But the thing is, I don't know if you're aware of. Uh, this is such a niche thing for uh, your European listeners, and Americans are going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. But we had a, a Republican senator a number of years back in the bathroom of actually my hometown, Minneapolis, uh, in um, the bathroom of the Minneapolis airport. And he was a known homophobe and he was soliciting gay sex from people and he ended up getting caught in an undercover sting. And his way of doing it was sticking his foot. And this is apparently a thing that you do when you're cruising, uh, at least in the Minneapolis airport bathroom. You stick your foot into the next stall and tap it. And then that's letting people know, you know, hey, I'm down. And, and then they're supposed to do it back. So kind of the opposite happens when you have stalls like that, it seems like. I uh, am screaming internally and freaking out, but that's okay. I have a cold beer. <laughs> <laughs> Second question. Your tall toilet seat thing is weird. I, I felt like relieving myself in a puddle. <laughs> Wait, tall toilets. You mean like up high above, 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 the, uh, above the ground? You mean? No, no. The, the water level and the toilet oh. is like super high. It's just what? Because, you know... um. I'm trying to, um, I'm a serious podcast. I can't just, how do I explain this? It's like, it's like, you, you, it's, it's like you drop it in and then, then the water just splashes up and hits you. And 
<laughs> I mean, again, that's like, that's not even just public bathrooms. That's like most bathrooms. Exactly. Yeah. That's everywhere. And then when you flush it, it, it in Europe, it's kind of like it's there and then you flush it and then the water comes down from the place of, how, how is it even called in English? I don't know. Well, the toilet tank, the tank in the back. Yeah. 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 That thing. Well, basically you push the button because we don't have those little side things. You push the button and then the water comes down from the tank and flushes it all into the pipes. It like it, it washes it away. Meanwhile, in, in the United States, I was freaking out because I because I, I I do the bottom thing, and then it's kind of like an airplane. It's like, oh yep, <laughs> yep yep. Well, especially in the airplanes, those are those, that always like yeah. I have an irrational fear, you know, about using airplane bathrooms. <laughs> airplane bathroom is one thing, but when you have it like every day. I wonder who designed them, because it might seem strange that we I talk about these mundane things, but these are the mundane things that kind of portray the difference. I mean, those are the things that are vastly different. When people say Western world, I, I think a lot of them don't even imagine the little tiny differences, but those things add up. And uh, some things are weird. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, um, I don't know what it's like in Latvia, but I didn't learn to appreciate how good we have it with our tap water until I went to China. And also, I completely agree with you, the, the sort of weirdness of American bathrooms. But brother, unless you go to a Chinese bathroom in, an, in a train station, you don't know filth. <laughs> it is the most disgusting place I have ever been in my life. <laughs> Sadly, comrade, uh, here's, here's the thing. I know exactly what kind of bathroom you're talking about, because that was exactly the kind of bathroom the Soviets installed during the 50s. Yep. I would imagine. Could we just call it, let's, let's just call it communist bathrooms. Let's just call it that. Yeah. So it's literally a hole in the ground with uh, some weird, mm -hmm. then you look at it and it's like, are you supposed to put your legs there? Okay. Maybe you don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, that. Yeah. Squat toilets. Yeah. Those are, if you haven't grown up with a squat toilet, it's a nightmare <laughs> to like try to use one. It's a complete nightmare. They were built in some remote villages and everywhere in Soviet Union, like in the 50s. They, they very quickly moved away from them. But like random bus station in Bumblefuck, middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's probably easier and cheaper to use toilets like that. I mean, no shame. I spent more money to stay in hotels in China, specifically in Changsha, um, which is not too far from where Chairman Mao is actually from, funny enough. I spent extra money for hotels that had thrown toilets because I was just like, I'm not doing this. I can't do this. It hurts. It, it just, if you fall, you're, I mean, use your imagination. What happens if you fall while you're trying to squat? Oh, no, no. See, comrade, I can give you a pro tip. <laughs> if you would know how to squat on your full leg, like, like, like true Eastern Europeans and apparently Chinese, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that, that requires you to do a full foot squat there for stability reasons, definitely. About tap water, by the way, Lafayette has good tap water, but I've drank tap water in Rome and uh, yeah, Rome and tap water are good in fountains, bad in hotels. Okay, because the interesting, the reason I brought that up is because until I went to China, I just was like, okay, I want some water and go to the tap, pour it out into a cup and then take a sip. But in China, you have to boil it first. And interestingly, in Ireland, when I went there, we didn't have to boil the water, but they were very explicit in saying, you know, because you know, we're a couple of Americans, they were they knew they had to tell us this. Do not drink the bathroom water like from the bathroom sink. Apparently, it's it's different and it's dirty. I don't know. So that was very strange to me. Yeah, that is that is also strange. To, I think that might be a Western European thing, specifically Western Europe thing, because back in like Soviet and Eastern Europe countries, you can just drink the tap water. One thing that is really good here is that one free refills. Oh, right. That's good in the States. Mm -hmm. Actually, they give you water everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you can like refill water from places. Portion sizes, however, I have understood that I can't manage them. <laughs> I would go for, say, um, if, if they would have like, you know, large, medium, small, European, and then European would cost kind of less, <laughs> but they give you like a portion that you can eat actually and, and that you can take with you or something. Yeah, yeah. I, that's always my favorite thing when I hear from my European friends and just people I've met who are from Europe who then come here for the first time. Just it's always the same thing. Just complete gobsmacked at how big our food portions are. I mean, I also, I do not want the fries with everything. At this point, I am so tired of, <laughs> of fries. I, I keep telling every everything, please, no fries. 
Just, no. <laughs> you can substitute, um, depends on where you are, I suppose, and what eating, but you can usually substitute fries with like a salad or something like that. I- I'm trying to. I'm really trying to. <laughs> well, have you been to Texas? I forgot. You were on the West Coast last time. I have been to Fort Worth a bit. Yes, Fort a, a bit. Okay, so they tend to do things very big in Texas, as they say. So I'm pretty sure that's where you're going to find the biggest portions anywhere. But there is the infamous, uh, have you ever heard, have you, have you been to Las Vegas? I actually, my original plan was was to go to Texas and then from there to Vegas and then to go to Grand Canyon. But, you know, uh, as you've been living here, you might know that there was a massive heat wave going on. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I had gone there, I would have died. Yeah. Literally. That is not an exaggeration, by the way. I would have. It was like 96 Fahrenheit. I have learned Fahrenheit here, comrade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, was about, it was about 96 degrees uh, in New York when I was there. And... Um, it was painful. Well, where I live in uh, California, in Los Angeles, I live up in the valley, the San Fernando Valley, and a particular part of the valley gets so much hotter than the rest of Los Angeles. Like right now down in LA proper, it's probably like 90 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe even less. But where I am, it has been and is going to be apparently for the next week or so, 100 degrees Fahrenheit on average every day. And don't get me wrong. I, I'm glad I don't get, you know, blizzarded as much as I used to when I lived in the Midwest, but um, it's sort of like the reverse of how bad it is. It's funny, actually, that we're talking about America, sort of the American experience that you're having, because I just did my first cross-country road trip in, I don't know how long recently, with uh, my partner and her brother. And uh, we went up to Minnesota in an RV and then back. And on our way back, we went through what we didn't know at the time. We were just thinking, okay, we're just going to stop one more stop before we get back to Los Angeles. We stopped in this town that if anyone listening knows about this town, they're going to know exactly what I'm going to say about it called Needles, California. We didn't know this, but apparently it's the hottest place in the United States besides like Death Valley, which I have been to, by the way, and I can attest to that being also incredibly hot. But when we got into Needles, it was 118 degrees Fahrenheit. It didn't drop below 100 Fahrenheit until after midnight that night. It, it, I don't know how people are living there. And it, as I understand it, it's a dying town. And I'm thinking that it could be like one of the lesser known uh, casualties of maybe climate change or what. I mean, a lot of the problems have to do with uh, employment, but also like the climate is unlivable there. Like, I don't know how people do it, but there's like 6,000 people who still live in needles. So like talking about everything here, uh, things that I really liked lobster in Maine. Sure. Then uh, I had the privilege of eating oysters at uh, Union Oyster House in Boston. Hmm. Because I have now walked the Freedom Trail once again in full, and I did not stop without crossing the bridge. No, no, no. <laughs> no, sir. I went I went to the USS Constitution and to the Bunker Hill, except I was like a minute late and I couldn't go up the whole monument there, but I, I have a souvenir. Boston is a good, good place if you're a European and want to travel to the States for the first time. I would recommend Boston mm-hmm. because it has enough Europeanness in this awkward way and it has these huge contrasts like it's really really awesome to take photos of this 18th century building that's squeezed in between skyscrapers yeah like the old the old churches right yeah 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 and that's to me that's really charming and nice and and uh, you could just rename freedom trail to oldest in america literally anything yeah i mean i gotta tell you man i i don't tend to feel very much patriotism when i go to washington dc i've only been there twice and i like it it has some like you were mentioning great museums very good museums yeah but i always yeah i just feel so patriotic every time i go to boston i've been there many more times than dc and i just just boston really does sort of ooze revolutionary america for obvious reasons and you can just really feel it yeah it does and it's really charming i've been to boston three times now twice for the conferences and now mm-hmm. now this time and i really liked it i really really liked it and i'm gonna be you know uh, definitely gonna be coming back because for one it's uh, the second capital of ireland <laughs> yeah yeah it's debatable where more irish people live boston or dublin you know <laughs> <laughs> probably boston actually I would. I, I'm going to choose to believe Boston. Actually, I would imagine it's also to continue your uh, love affair with Sam Adams. <laughs> oh yes, it's see Sam Adams is a. It's kind of a weird emotional thing because that was the first beer I tried in the United States. Like the first one before I tried all the Bud Lights and Coors and everything else. Sam Adams was the first one. I was like, hey, uh, this is pretty good. It tastes kind of like a Latvian beer. It's not very good by Latvian standards, but it's okay. It's one of those beers that would be like you wouldn't be ashamed to say to your friends, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm talking about the default. Sam Adams. Seasonal ones change, of course. Some of, some are better and stuff. But I really liked Sam Adams and I like the study behind it. Mm-hmm. And then on my second trip, uh, the guy who uh, used to run Inward Empire, 
really sorry that that podcast died. Yeah, Sam Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he took me to Sam Adams Brewery, and uh, that was funny because they <laughs> they gave out a souvenir shot glass to a person who was like from the furthest away, and some Californian guy was like, "Yeah, I'm from California. I'm gonna pick this one up. I'm from LA." And he's like reaching for it. I'm like, hello, Latvia here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and there was like, what? Where? <laughs> I, in terms of like really fun, like sort of locations like that of like very American uh, food products, I guess I, I would lump beer in with food. I mean, beer is food, basically. Come on, get calories. You get calories. It's food. But um, beer is liquid bread. It's liquid bread. Exactly. Uh, we um, on our way back, you I don't know if you'd ever have any reason to go here because you'd have to go to a very small town in Minnesota called Austin. And, but in Austin, Minnesota, they have the spam museum. No joke. The museum dedicated to spam because spam was created in Austin, Minnesota, which is this little tiny town. It's one of my favorite museums I've ever been to in my life. It's just so delightful. This is interesting because I want to go there because this, by the way, ties into Eastern European history. See, in the 90s, in the 90s, when we were just switching and we were super poor and everything, you know, uh, we had a lot of, you know, Latvians who had migrated from diaspora, right? They had migrated to the United States and Canada, whatever. And I remember a lot of Latvians, when the packages could finally arrive, a lot of American families sent the kind of packages to Latvia, you know, with clothing and meds and everything because we couldn't get it. And we were like super poor just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, capitalism arrived. And I remember that my family had to sustain itself on like American spam for about a month or so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, spam saved saved Latvian lives. Let me tell you that. So uh, it's no joke. Oh, it's it it's so funny. Like Americans do like to joke about spam, but it is like a very historically significant product. Um, I actually would only I can only assume that Latvians during World War II probably were exposed to spam because that's where it got its biggest spread around the world. Is because we uh, sent it, you know, with our with our troops and American troops hated spam by the end of the war. And that's probably where it got its kind of its negative reputation originally was from American troops just being like, oh, spam. I don't want to eat that ever again. But yeah, I know Soviet troops got a lot of it, too. So look, look, look. See, see, like it, it, if the difference is eating just, I don't know, uh, something that is maybe maybe partially bread yeah. or spam, we, we pick spam. Spam, like with all the other processed foods and everything, if you want to live a healthy lifestyle, you shouldn't eat processed foods. But if you have nothing else to eat, I mean, it's, it's the same with like your standard loaf of bread. It might not be French one from boulangerie, right? but it saves lives, you know, it saves lives. And if during war, you can't, beggars can't be choosers, especially during war. It's the same thing. I mean, and look, it, it's kind of like, and again, I'm switching to Ukraine here. In Ukraine, people basically accept donations in their kind of areas where the war has gone over. Like local grandmas bake their own bread and send their own pickle jars and no one's complaining. Mm hmm. Which is, by the way, uh, if you donate something to Ukraine, I would like to say here that uh, th there's enough food because, you know, we're Eastern Europeans. We can manage about the food stuff. What, what's really lacking is like detergent and, and stuff like that. Like basics, right? Like detergent, basic laundry stuff, all this, all this thing. So if you're, if you're donating in some produce or you're a company that makes it, because I saw personally when like people were, you know, they were standing in line for stuff and they had enough food, but they had like to split like a single pack of detergent, like laundry powder for, for like five families. Mm. So mm. that's the, that's the issue here. Hello there. And thanks for listening to another episode of the Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters. Every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. 
Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. What about other pos- Again, this is going to be a very mixed show because this is the Eastern Border. We talk about we talk about happy thing and then then it's depression. <laughs> Now I wanted to say that New York is its own beast. <laughs> I, I, I really don't believe New York is actually in the United States. New York is New York. Mm-hmm. It could be an independent country and it would be doing well and okay, I suppose. Oh, yeah. It's, it, 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 you said it's the capital of capitalism, essentially, I, or of the capitalist world. Yes. I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it very much is. And you know, sort of like how Los Angeles is the entertainment capital of the world like yeah there's there's stuff oh yeah yeah definitely yeah there's you know musicians are from everywhere but you know the music industry in a lot of ways is here movie industry obviously is here uh fill in the blank you know so yeah i i I totally get you on that one thing about new york though is that i actually i thought where did they get all their water and it turns out there's a youtube video that explains where they get their water which is interesting but uh, in this massive amount of heat i can tell you i can separate districts in new york city by smell (laughs) okay so what does uh brooklyn smell like did you go to brooklyn yes i was my speaking event was there oh right yes i remember that in a pub called wild birds that's a great name apparently brooklyn has a baltic street okay i wonder if that's related to the monopoly avenue baltic avenue I don't know. But like, the thing is, I cannot describe the smell to you in words because that would imply that I understand what's what's in it. <laughs> if I would close my eyes and you would just present me with spells from New York, I guess I could probably tell you, hmm, this is around like, uh, I don't know, Brooklyn and 100th Street or something. <laughs> That's not- it's like it's sort of like a sommelier, an expert on wine, but you are an expert on the smells of the boroughs of New York. I'm I'm not an expert on this. I, I'm pretty sure the locals can know it better. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. The way I said this capital stuff, New York looks amazing from from like on top because I was in the Rockefeller Tower. Oh, right. Okay. Top of the rock, which is cheaper and more open than anything else. I, I'm going to go back actually tomorrow and then I'm going to go uh, take the ferry and see the Statue of Liberty and be in the historical parts of New York. But uh, yeah, well, uh, Times Square at night, uh, nothing beats the, uh, the the whole view and nothing also beats the whole sense that I'm going to be mugged. Oh my God, there's so many people here. <laughs> well, and there, there has been an increase in crime in New York City. I mean, it's a question of like when they're going to basically turn it into uh, the 1990s again, where they crack down on crime with their broken windows policy, quote unquote, where they just arrest you for the tiniest offense. Uh, That was how Giuliani, quote unquote, cleaned up the city. I mean, he did. And I mean, New York was kind of a shithole for a very long time, but it's and it's kind of going back that way. But it's not even close from what I've heard from people in New York. It's not even close to what it was like in the 1970s. In the 1970s, it was it was a nightmare. I have to say that out of all the things, Washington, D.C., surprisingly enough, is the most European looking city I've been to. Yeah, there's a lot of um, Roman influences in a lot of uh, with the monuments and so forth. Yeah. And, and like the buildings look like very classical stuff that was, that's built in 1920s and, and things that I can recognize, like a lot of buildings look like things in Rig Old Town as well mm. in here in Washington, D.C. But something creeped me out. I went to this American History Museum and there's a giant, gigantic sort of monument of George Washington in the middle. Okay. But the problem is, the problem is that... Um Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
you know, um, there's a monument of him, uh, and they make him look like a ripped Greek god. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I actually haven't been to that museum, and I, you know, it's on my list, but yeah. He's like sitting there with his sandals and everything. They make him look like a ripped Greek god, but they still put his like old person face on top of it. That is really weird yeah <laughs> so it's like it's like this george washington's portrait as you would see from his standard portraits the ones made in 1790 or something and that sits atop of a basically huge body of a greek god oh i was just gonna say it's not that i mean it is weird but and this kind of all gets into the philosophical question of how americans uh sort of relate to their own past and when they do because they don't very often but i'm going to that with this one because this is the important part and then i went to Lincoln Memorial, mm. which is amazing. I really liked this, but I looked at this and he just stands there, also very monumental. Mm -hmm. And I think he's kind of being deified there. Oh, yeah. But then I looked at his clothing. At least that didn't make him look like a Greek god. And then I thought, <laughs> hey, you know what? He lived in 1860, like 1865, right? Yeah, that's when he was assassinated, was 65, yeah. And then I remembered, well, we in in Russian Empire back then we um we were still living at brutal served them for three more years back <laughs> in our provinces and then I thought well let's take the average let's take one generation let's think in generations let's presume a generation is say twenty five to thirty years it's about ten generations only that have passed since Lincoln died mm -hmm. when slavery ended and when served them happened kind of weird how time passes because if you think about it eighteen sixty is not that far away if you think about how many generations have passed. And like I said, I'm picking 25 to 30 years, but people live way longer than that. So it is a bit weird, isn't it? It is. And it really does speak to something that, you know, it's kind of an obvious statement, but it needs to be said more is just how young America is. It's a, it's barely even a teenager in sort of country terms. I mean, like you have, I mean, you were telling me when I had you on my show, like you were really emphasizing just how old Latvian culture is. If you look at it, especially from the perspective of um, its uh, pagan religions from back in the day. Yes. Our country itself is young, but our culture and people who live there, they're old. So. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, especially it's made very clear to me because my partner, Molly, is, you know, her family's Chinese. So I get to, you know, talk about Chinese history with her mom a lot. I, I can't stress enough how immature, and I don't mean that in like a value judgment sense, though I somewhat do, uh, but just how immature in the literal sense America is compared to a culture like China. Like people talk about things, for example, like, will China ever see democracy? And I'm like, I don't even think that's on the menu. I, it's just such a it's so beyond like even considering some a system like that. Like there are Chinese activists who are pro-democracy, but it's generally speaking, Chinese uh, citizens don't see value in something in a system like that. Yeah, I, I've, I've noticed that as well since I watched a lot of videos about China and they're like they're thinking in a different category here, very culturally, because, yeah. They don't see democracy as a virtue or something of value. They don't really. Mm -hmm. It's a different value system, really. It's, it's something else. It's Confucian. It's a Confucian value. Our mutual uh, comrade, uh, Daniele Bolelli, when he did a sort of ripples of history bit, I got to do a little section about 25 minutes long about Confucius. And I didn't do a deep dive on him by any means. But what I did learn about him was, no, he, his influence on Chinese culture is infinite. Like you can talk about how quote unquote communist or not communist China is, but the sort of PR line they give, which is we're communist with Chinese characteristics, um, or is it capitalist with Chinese? And those Chinese characteristics, th those are Confucianism, definitely. Those are Confucianism, exactly. And that's why I think like whatever they call their system, it doesn't really matter because what it is, is a sort of Confucian hierarchy. That's always how it's going to be. I don't, I really don't think that's going to change. And here's the thing about the systems. See, that, that struck me the most because, oh yeah, uh, finishing up on other stuff, I was also in the spy museum and I noticed they had a mistake there. Oh, how was that? Was it cool? I, I really want to go. It was really awesome. It was really awesome, except they had a tiny little mistake there that, that irked me to no end. Okay. It's just one thing but I, that I noticed. In their exposition, they had like a Minox camera, right? Mm -hmm. See, the thing is they wrote that it was invented and produced in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that uh, it was invented in Latvia by a Latvian German. We take great pride <laughs> in being the inventors and producers of Minox. It's, it was a Baltic German that invented it. Uh, I, I think in Latvian we name him Walter Zaps 
on Latin in, in English, you write his surname as Z A P P. Oh, Zap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He basically produced that in, in VEF, Latvian factory from 1937. And the thing is, they wrote in the whole like description of that being the most popular spy camera in the world for like 30 years. They even had the one made in Riga one in 1938. <laughs> and then they say, invented in Germany. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's a tiny little thing, but like... If like Latvia doesn't have a lot of things that we take, you know, great pride in. Sure, but, yeah. But but this is our tiny little thing. Can we please have it? You need to have more than just we survived the Soviets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know that's an accomplishment. Don't get me wrong, but still, having world's first very popular spy camera, like this tiny little photo produced and invented in Latvia. That is one of the things that we like. And we would like people to, you know, acknowledge us on that one. It, it wasn't Germany. <laughs> Otherwise, it was really great. I, I will acknowledge it. And I am planning one day to do, um, you know, some a series of episodes about various espionage uh, stories that I find really interesting. I'm going to make sure to do a shout out, though, to Latvia. Make sure to say, hey, guys, if I bring up a micro camera here, just just know that this is not a German invention. Chris Jobs will kill me if I tell if I say it's German. <laughs> <laughs> The most fun part in the spy museum was the was the part where like Soviets are building embassy in in Washington. Here's how we planted bugs in there and how they failed because of traitors. <laughs> and then there's the other part. And here's how we built our embassy in, in the USSR. And here's how they planted all their bugs there. And everything. Yeah. <laughs> that was the silly part. Like the Soviets, basically, they had to remove like a bunch of concrete because the CIA had mixed in their bugs with concrete. Meanwhile, the, the, the United States had to basically demolish and, and destroy rebuild two floors of their embassy because of U- USSR bugs. <laughs> I, I kind of I imagine that in Cold, Cold War era, the both sides are just like sitting there and they're like, they have teams of engineers and everything they do, they do is try to figure out more innovative ways how to just plant more bugs in each other's embassy. Well, and not only that, and I'm sure the Soviets did this too, I mean, but infamously, we bugged ourselves. Nixon bugged his own office. Kennedy bugged his own office. The Oval Office had bugs in it or recording devices. I don't know if I'd call them bugs in the same traditional sense, but yeah, like that's why we have we, you know, have as much information as we do about these presidents. We know what they thought, what they said. Uh, of course Comrade Stalin did not bug his office. We know that for hundred percent. Do you have any questions about <laughs> Are you implying that uh, Comrade Stalin needs bugs in his office to know everything about the Soviet Union? Well, you know, let me ask, actually, I, don't, I mean, I know you're interviewing me, essentially, but I got to ask you, is it also reasonable to assume Stalin didn't bug his own office because he was paranoid? I mean, or did he bug it because he was paranoid? The Soviet Union had about 17 secret services, and he started his morning by just reading daily reports from all of them. And he made them compete. He didn't run the intelligence as one thing. He basically used the reports of like, so three agencies tell me this one thing, and this fourth one is telling me the fourth, the other thing. Well, I'm gonna gonna have to call Mister uh, whomever runs the agency now, Comrade. Uh, well, whatever, Ivan. Ivan, get get me Ivan. I have a nice conversation with Ivan. He might get a new home. <laughs> that's just that's just really interesting to me. Yeah, because I mean, as little as I know about Stalin, especially compared to you, I mean, I, I do know that he was very much into sort of pitting his own agencies against each other in a lot of ways. So, yeah, yeah. But but the, the most important part, what I've been getting to, because again, I have about like fifteen minutes. Otherwise, uh, girlfriend's gonna kill me. I think she's gonna is. The thing is, like, I really liked uh, the exposition in the, in the Smithsonian American History Museum about democracy. And it made me think, because it doesn't go into like, oh, and this was the revolution, everyone became free. No, it goes in depth about what's the democracy, why it was chosen, and what it meant, democracy for whom, and what are the challenges of it. And it really showed that, yeah, like you said, the United States might be a teenage country in global terms, but the whole answers and challenges that it produces and the whole thing that it wants other countries to see in it. Yeah, those are real. And the struggles about, you know, what is what is a democracy and why do we need it? I think that's that's an interesting question that the United States tries to answer all this time. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to compare it because like, it made me think about what's the difference between what you consider democracy and what we consider democracy back at home. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of made me reflect on how the Soviet Union which, if you remember, also wasn't an old nation. The Soviet Union was even a younger nation than the United States of America, and they had their own ideals. Right. They would have asked, what's socialism? Yeah. And how does this have to do with it? Here we come to this interesting question about why is democracy a value even? Because that's kind of the central thing. 
back in Europe, when we learn about the United States at school, we don't learn about your founding fathers in the same way that you do. There, there's a common thing that, uh, well, at least when I was going to high school, we spoke about civil religion. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was actually going to bring that up, to be honest. Yeah. Our other comrade, uh, I like I like name dropping all our comrades uh, on this episode today, I guess. But our, our, our comrade, C.J. Kilmer, a Dangerous History podcast, he did an excellent episode. Good person. Check him out. Yes, yes. Dangerous History is amazing. He just went fully independent, too, like you. So we should uh, be all supporting him, too. But mm. he um, he did an episode. I mean, he's talking about the civil religion of America a lot. But he did an episode specifically about the civil religion. And uh, he also expanded it into sort of what, you know, he was talking about like sort of how like America has become seemingly at least increasingly divided and how it's sort of resembling a civil religious civil war in a way, like a religious schism in a lot of ways. I can't help but agree with him on that because I do think there is that element in the air. I do think that America, by the way, has been this divided, if not even more so before. I mean, one, we had a civil war, so we have that to consider. But on top of that, we've had these ebbs and flows of populist backlash multiple times. So I think what makes this era special is the technology involved. But to your, more to your point about the civil religion of America, I think that it's a, it's a very old debate that really was big in the 2000s when George Bush was president, George W. Bush, about are we a Christian nation? Well, in a sense, in some ways, yes, we are, but only in so much as we're a Western country and the West is largely defined by Christianity and its history. That's just a fact. And I think there's nothing wrong with pointing that out or pointing out that I think at this point, two thirds of American adults identify as Christian, but that is not what holds the country together because again it's only two thirds and i think there's a lot of competing religions in our culture and not just like the you know the big five uh we obviously have plenty of jews muslims buddhists and hindus here too uh, but we also have all other religions but we also have these new boutique of religions that do spring out of the american civil religion in a lot of ways i think for example most recent examples of the civil religion at work in creating schisms is sort of the divide between what we could call progressive America or social justice oriented America and MAGA America or Trump vision of America. Uh, without passing any judgment on either, I just see those as expressions of the civil religion, uh, just new expressions of it. And in increasingly fundamentalist ways, though, that's the part that I'm not a really big fan of, of either of those religions. They're very fundamentalist. Uh, but I do think that it's an, it's an extension of what you're talking about. That's the thing which I like to mention, because that was a positive that I thought about the United States. Mm. I mean, here, um, in a way, even this kind of schismatic way, mm. because you see, um, you, if we look at this whole, this basically your constitution is your sacred texts and you have your own prophets, mm -hmm. praise be Washington and Lincoln, because it, literally I looked at them being portrayed and then it's like, if you, if you have learned something about cultural history, those are basically divine entities put there in the throat. Yeah. They're being portrayed as such. Whether or not you treat them as such, different question. It's just that it's the image for me as a European that strikes first. Have you been to Mount Rushmore? Because that's the best expression of it besides DC. Sadly, I haven't, but I really want to go okay. at one point. Yeah, it, it really helps express that. Yeah. You, you guys have a schism going on there. But then I thought about back in the USSR, we had a reformer, like if we talk about these ideologies in a religious kind of way, we had a run Martin Luther in the form of Gorby. Mm. And then the whole thing just collapsed. Mm -hmm. And we had our own splits. I mean, uh, in the end, well, uh, everyone, Chinese Communist Party claims to be the true descendants of where Christian people have uh, Jesus, communists have Lenin. Yeah. So everyone's a truer Leninist than everyone else, you see. I love that they don't invoke Marx. <laughs> Marx is invoked only by Western socialists, whom everyone else who uh, followed the path of Lenin. That would make sense. It, it's also kind of like the Christian church. Uh, everyone who follows Marx is kind of like Catholic, but everyone in the, in the Eastern parts, they're kind of like Orthodox. So they follow the Leninists. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, I, I like that comparison. Yeah. Isn't it kind of scary that you can kind of explain ideologies, including democracy and American way of life by just using religious analogies? It's a little eerie. But it is It is what it is. I mean, it's sociology. It is what it is. Exactly. It is. Yeah. Look, a little eerie is how I explain how I can explain my feeling when I just went up the Lincoln Memorial at night. Yeah. And he's there. And, and like the inscription upon him says like, and they literally call this memorial a temple to democracy. And he's there and he's like stern and everything. and. 
Yes, yes. I kind of like this this part of modern history better when we when we look at our historical figures as fallible, uh, fallible human beings. Because you know, if you think about it, it's one thing for an infallible demigod to do great things in history. It's quite another when you know that those guys, you know, probably ate burgers or something, drank some beer, were worried they had headaches, and they probably had to go to the your terrible bathrooms with weird stalls or something. <laughs> it is kind of better that, you know, if you figure out that those people who did great things in history did those great things while still being human and while dealing with all this normal stuff. Right. It's kind of like this sanitized version of history that when we kind of forget that they too were once human. I mean, yeah. Caesar had this slave reminding him that he was mortal. Yeah. And right now we've forgotten that sometimes mortality is not a bad trait to have, so to speak. Yeah. And I one thing I, I do think is more of a drawback with how a lot of Americans, I won't say all Americans, but how a lot of Americans do treat our civil religion in a sanitized way. Uh, they are unwilling to look at certain historical figures in any kind of poor light. Um, but we also have this problem where a lot of us will just go with the reverse and just only see the bad in them. Like Jefferson owned slaves. He was a villain full stop. Or Jefferson made it possible in the Constitution to free the slaves one day. So he is a great hero, full stop. And I, I just, you know, I won't say most because I honestly don't know. I haven't taken a poll. But the sense I get is the loudest voices in the room who talk about this stuff tend to just be either or. It's not as common as I would like it to be where we just look at these people, as you say, like men and women and just sort of see them as, you know, fallible creatures. Because I think the sooner we do that, the better we are, because then we don't get stuck in this endless cycle of pointing out how someone's a moral hypocrite. You know what I mean? Yeah. And by the way, this is why I invited you to come over and talk about America, because you get the point here, comrade. <laughs> and it's also very fun to always call your comrade. <laughs> kind of have to wrap this up because, again, recording in a hotel in D.C. is weird, but... Sure, sure, sure. In a way, I'm looking at all these Washington this and Washington that, and I remember how everywhere in the Soviet Union we had Lenin this and Lenin that, and then for a while Stalin this and Stalin that. The forms are the same, you know. We also had Stalin leading us to the bright future. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, remembering good stuff is fun, but... I mean, I've seen that, that famous... There's that famous mural of Lenin standing with like the sun behind him, right? Which I, you know what? I just realized I probably described a million different murals and portraits in the Soviet Union, but I'm thinking of a particular one where he's like literally depicted as this sort of communist prophet because he was in a sense. Yes. And there's also a funny story because uh, in one of the paintings, because there were like a ton of paintings about uh, this reminded me because I saw the. Washington crosses the Delaware, the Met. Great painting, by the way. I really like it. Oh, yeah. But uh, th there was a painting of Stalin going to a kind of a Sunday uh, work together thing, because the Soviets had this thing that in Sundays you would come together and you would all work together. And there's a painting of Lenin carrying a, a huge log together with someone else, and that someone else's face isn't, you know, it's not it's not visible. And that's kind of a painting of a real event where Lenin also worked at these, like, you know, when, when, when peasants and workers come together to, you know, clean something, build something, whatever. Mm. And in Soviet Union, there were like legends of literally every family knew someone who was definitely the guy who was like the other person carrying the log, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like, ah, oh, that was my ancestor on that boat with Washington. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure, sure, guys. I'm sure that person is real. <laughs> and that's the problem. That, that's, that's my big thing with all this, because especially with the war in Ukraine and everything is going on with all the sad parts. You know what? Sometimes you have to have a reality check and not Sure, you can respect your heroes and learn your myths, but remember that uh, reality check is needed. Otherwise, you know, in, in uh, I don't know what, 100 years, someone might look at everything that we're doing and deem it silly. Well, they're going to listen to my show and deem everything I do silly anyways. Maybe yours too, but never take yourself too seriously, I think. Absolutely mine. You kidding me? <laughs> no, you shouldn't. I mean, this is always what I say. If, like, if people are really serious about equality, you know, brotherly love and all that, just be aware that we're all equally as capable of being giant pieces of shit as one another. Well, actually, this is a really nice talk. I'm, I'm sorry to cut this short. I would have it going for like three more hours, but I have to wake up super early in the morning and get to New York City. However, I will call you back at some point when I'm in Latvia because we're, we have a lot of Girkin to discuss. And also a thing that we couldn't discuss 
events with uh, Rushdi, that stuff too, which you've been active about. I've been very active about that. I mean, it's it's sort of my wheelhouse in a lot of ways. So yeah, let's hope that Mr. Sir, Sir Salman Rushdie has a speedy recovery. Uh, of course, Th- that would be that would be excellent. And also, really, thanks for being on the show. I consider this one third of our interview, or I'm going to have you on more. It's just that I record in weird circumstances in a hotel, in a weird situation, but it's going to be great. So, uh, of course, yes. Thank you for having me. Please, please tell everyone how do they find your show? Well, they just can go to historyimpossible.com. It's the main website. You can find all the shows there. Uh, you can also just find me on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify, all that good stuff. I mean, the best way to support the show is through Patreon, of course, patreon.com slash historyimpossible. You get ad-free versions of the show. I just recently picked up um, a good number of sponsorships, so that'll be really nice for people who don't want to sit through ads. So, yeah, I mean, and you can find me on Twitter. It's yeah, it would, you'll tag me, I'm sure, in Twitter. So I, I have tagged you like 19 million times. Last yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I've tagged you, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, yeah. Patreon is, is as you know, it's the best way to, to you know, listen to the to any show without ads. Support Alexander. He's a great guy. And uh, actually, I seriously hope you come over to Laffy and we meet one day. Like, honestly, I would really like to. I'm not I'm not even not even making that up. I really do want to go to Eastern Europe, specifically the the Baltics, the Balkans. Yeah, I will absolutely create a speaking event for you back home. It's going to be awesome. Very nice. Thank you so much, comrade. Uh, thank you. And uh, have a great evening or day or time of night or something. And never listen to it as well. Yeah, it's still ev- it's evening here, but it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. OK, see ya. Yeah. See you, man. Oh, um, and everyone, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.